This morning's sermon text is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is our last Sunday in, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we're going to just take the last few verses here, beginning in verse 9. This is our 18th and final week in, in Ecclesiastes. Um, we're going to highlight this morning a couple of themes a few things that have stood out along the way and tie in this last, this last section together this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, I'll read through the end of the book. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. These six verses at the end of this book give us the final bookend to Solomon's work here in Ecclesiastes. If you remember all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, we saw the introduction made of Solomon. There, Solomon writes, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. He's obviously referring to himself there, but uh, this is important because this is the author speaking and he's setting up, uh, setting up what the preacher is going to communicate to us through this book. The preacher is the son of David, who is Solomon. So, And everything then that happens between verse 2 and all the way through 12.8 is the preacher's voice. This is the, the voice through which we hear the wisdom that comes to us through this book. It's given to us from the perspective of the preacher. The author is the one who introduces the preacher in verse 1 and then gives us this conclusion in chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. This is his conclusion, right? He steps away from what has been said and said, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing, studying, arranging, many proverbs with, with great care. He writes the intro and the conclusion, and the voice makes up everything, the voice of the preacher makes up everything in between. Why does Solomon use this device? Why does he do this? Why does he show us uh, someone or maybe step outside of his normal, his normal voice? Why does he depart from the norm? I think when we think about living wisely, we oftentimes think about people who do the right thing and live, live a happy and fulfilled life. For instance, if you read the book of Proverbs, although mostly written by Solomon, And if you apply the wisdom there, you will find, oftentimes, that life is rewarding and fulfilling. You will learn what it is to live well, and you will learn to flourish. 
Take the Proverbs, set them aside. This is the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon indicates to us that he wants to point out specific realities of life under the sun. That's one of the purposes of the book of Ecclesiastes. Proverbs, take the thing that he says to do and you will live a life that is fulfilling. A life of happiness. Ecclesiastes throws a wrench in the gears. So, Solomon introduces us to this voice called the preacher. And then the author gets the final word, right? This is our text this morning. Summarizing for us who the preacher is and what his primary message to the reader contains. So just as an exercise for us before we dive into verses 9-14 through in chapter 12, we're going to look very closely at some of the themes that we've seen throughout this book and why the author would want to conclude and bring the book to an end in the way that he does. The list of themes that I'm going to give you here is by no means comprehensive. There's a lot of things that we've explored throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. But uh, these are the most important. I think they'll help us gather our thoughts and help us understand better, again, this author's conclusion. So there are three things for us to think about moving into our text this morning that we've seen uh, the weight behind us. Chapter 1, verse 2 through chapter 12, verse 8. Three things to consider. First, is the inevitability of death. The second is the importance of holding everything in its proper place. Third, our response to realities of life to life under the sun. The inevitability of death, the importance of holding everything in its proper place, and third and finally, our response to the realities of life under the sun. These are the three main things that I think Solomon wants to communicate. This is 30,000 foot view, not nitty gritty. These three things, though, are going to help us move into this author's conclusion. So first then, the inevitability of death. Even from the beginning of this book, the preacher is bent on showing us uh, exactly the reality of our impending death. The temporary nature of everything on earth, everyone on earth, is what he wants to drive us to. None of us can escape death. There is no one who has ever lived who has escaped death. There are wise ways to live, then, therefore, and there are foolish ways to live. But in the end, both the wise and the foolish, they both die. Now, last weekend, we our lead up into this text at the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, Blaze preached on that, and some of the implications were clear from that sermon. So I'm not going to linger here too long. But the preacher wants to be clear to us in the book of Ecclesiastes, we will all die. Our end here will, in fact, come. Everything and everyone in this room will eventually be forgotten and probably much sooner than we think. There is nothing that exists under the sun that can prevent that reality. Nothing that you can pursue as a, as a person here under the sun that can prevent the reality that we will all die. The, the preacher in a couple of different instances back in chapter 1, and then again in chapter 7, says that things are crooked. They're messed up. We're under the curse. And the result of that truth that things are crooked is that life will end in, ultimately, in death. The curse of sin has warped everything under the sun. We are all born into it and we willingly participate in it. 
Nothing under the sun can straighten out what God has made crooked. This is what the preacher tells us in chapter 7, verse 13. Because of this reality, then we must begin to wrestle with that second theme. We need to begin to wrestle with that second theme, which is where the preacher takes us next, which is the importance of holding everything in its proper place. Seeing the good gifts that we have around us and ensuring that we recognize that they are given to us by a good giver. The preacher tests many things. We explored many of them in the first few weeks of our time in Ecclesiastes. He explores these to see if there is something that will hold death at bay. Is there something that can prevent this reality? The impending nature, the inevitability of death. Is there anything here under the sun that can prevent that reality from coming about? And he tests many things. He tests wealth and fame and power and wisdom and sex and many other things. And these Solomon had much, much more of than we probably could ever even think of and imagine. He accumulated and accumulated, but it couldn't hold back death. So he draws a specific conclusion. What's his conclusion? Interestingly enough, he doesn't say, just get rid of all of those things and ignore them. Rather, he tells us to hold it all in its proper place. Understand what it's for, what it was made for. He tells us to take a look at the things we pursue and accumulate and recognize that they ultimately can't prevent death. Now in our mind's eye, I think oftentimes we say to ourselves, of course this can't prevent death. And yet sometimes we pursue these things, wealth, fame, power, wisdom. Sometimes we pursue these things like they can when they become our sole focus, when they become all that our mind is bent on, we begin to claim, this thing has the power to prevent me from dying. And so we see what we are given as good gifts designed to point us to a greater good. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes tells us to do. If we are going to die one day, then we need to recognize that the things that we have here are intended to point us to a greater good, not to prevent that death, not to prevent our own pain or suffering or expiration date. And when we see the things that we have as good gifts that were never intended to deliver us from harsh realities of life under the sun, then we can correctly respond to those realities. When we see the things that we are given as gifts and not don't have the ability to change things in our life, but are rather things to be enjoyed, pointing us to a greater enjoyment, then we can correctly respond to the realities of life under the sun. And so that's the third theme that we see. Our response to the realities of life under the sun. I frequently tell our kids when one of their siblings does something to them that upsets him or her, you don't have to like what just happened, but you can decide how you respond. I don't have to like the fact that we got 17 inches of snow over the last three days, but I can control or I can decide how I respond to that reality. That's what the preacher wants to communicate. 
The preacher tells us that we can control very little. And even then, I think that we can control literally almost nothing in our our reality. So many variables, so many things are outside of our control day to day. And if this is true, then much of life is about responses. And we are responsible for our responses. We could easily see what's going on around us and get upset or angry or bitter or frustrated or sad or anxious. We could realize that God has approved all of us and that uh, that allows us to participate in God-approved activities. This is the alternative to growing bitter or frustrated or resentful when things outside of our control happen to us. Our response is to realize that God has approved of us in Christ Jesus and that allows us to participate in God-approved activities, of which we talked about several weeks ago. These aren't crazy or they don't sound super spiritual to us, but, but these things are very important for the follower of Jesus to invest himself or herself in well. Eating and drinking with joy and celebrating with enthusiasm. Loving self-sacrificially and undividedly and working heartily with all that we have for God's glory. Again, these are simple activities that we can do in our day-to-day that are not difficult. When we think about spiritual life, we often think about church-going, church-related activities. We often think about programs like Bible study or prayer group. We think about our personal devotions. But the preacher names things that you do every day that you can't not do. You cannot take a a month off of eating or drinking. Uh, When you celebrate, things happen in your life and the lives of others that can cause you to rejoice. What about loving? Do you have any relationships? If you do, you're called to love. And working. We've all got to eat, so we've got to work for most of our lives. Solomon tells us to do it well and do it to God's glory, understanding that it is a good gift given to us by the good giver. So life under the sun is tough, and you will die. That's largely the message of Ecclesiastes, which is a super big bummer, at least at first glance. But then the response to that, therefore, the preacher says, use the things that God has given you to bring God glory. See that the gifts that you have received, see that they point you back to the giver. Don't make it all about you. That's foolish. Rather, be wise and respond well. See all that you do as spiritual, as communicating what you believe about God. There is nothing that we do, Solomon would say this, there is nothing that we do in our day-to-day life that doesn't first stem from our understanding of who God is. So I think that's the main messaging of the book of Ecclesiastes. The inevitability of death. The importance of holding everything in its proper place and our response to the realities of life under the sun. So with that in mind, what does the author end the book? Why does he end the book in the way that he does here in chapter 12, verses 9 through 14? 
He wants to see us draw the right conclusions. The, the author wants us to draw the right conclusions from what we've heard from the preacher. If we see the theme of Ecclesiastes is to help us respond well to the realities of life under the sun, including the inevitability of death, by holding things in the proper place, then we must acknowledge the proper path to get there. How do we do that? What is the proper path to get there? Verse 13 of our text gives it to us directly. This is the true and final conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes. Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. What does that mean? What does that mean? What, what do we do? Okay, thank you. Good. What's next? How do we do it? The author's summary of all the preacher has shared is right here. How do we fear God and keep His commands? Verses 9-12 through 12 start us down that path. The preacher was wise and he taught, it, taught knowledge. He, is, he assesses and arranges Proverbs. And he does it all with great care. Verse 9 tells us. And verse 9 gives insight into Solomon's process. But it also gives us a wonderful picture of Scripture as a whole. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, biblical authors like Solomon constructed the narrative of Scripture over millennia. In order that we... You and I in Jamestown, North Dakota in 2019 and all of the people of God for all of time would have the instruction necessary to know God and to know what He requires. So this text gives us the truth about Scripture which we're going to explore. This is the starting point to get to verse 13, to fear God and to keep all His commandments. First, we must understand how to gain the recognition of how to do that. And so, the author points out four things that are true that kind of work together for us. It says that Scripture is delightful. Scripture is formational. Scripture is firm. And Scripture is final. Those four things. We'll run through each of those very quickly and then we'll draw some conclusions out of them and tie them all back into that verse 13. Scripture is delightful, formational, firm, and final. Without Scripture, we are unable to fear God and keep His commands, which is why verses 9-12 through exist for us. So let's unpack those. The Word of God is delightful. Verse 10 tells us this. Look at verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight. Solomon's dad, King David, would write in Psalm 19.10 that God's words are more to be desired than gold, even more than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now, I take a delight in a lot of things. I take delight in a good hamburger. I take delight in ice cream, too much of it, my wife says. I, I take delight even more than those things. I take delight in my wife, and so I stop eating ice cream. Not entirely, but 
but a little bit. I take delight in my wife's kindness to my children, her diligence to give them much of herself, her resilience in the face of difficulty. I take delight in my children, their hugs and kisses, their laughter, their smiles. I take delight in in feeling the sun on my face, which is about to become a really foreign concept to us. The delight to feel the sun on my face with a canoe paddle in my hands. I take delight in seeing the fruit of my labor financially and otherwise. Just stepping back from my work and seeing what is accomplished. I've never held gold in my hands outside of what's maybe contained in my wedding ring. But David's words represent the pinnacle of wealth. When he says, more to be desired than they are, are they than gold, even much fine gold. Gold is the most precious metal that David knew. David didn't have any refined sugar, so honey was the sweetest thing available to him. The Word of God is more to be desired. And it is, in fact, sweeter. Now, those, those aren't words that we usually describe our Bible with. I'm guilty of that. That's what King David uses. David didn't even have much of Scripture. He had the first five books. And I don't know if you've read a Leviticus recently, but that's a slog. And yet he still said this. He still said, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Many Christian circles have reduced the Bible to a manual for life or something maybe a little bit sappier like God's love letter to us. This is not the direction that Solomon or David go. Their view of Scripture is much, much larger. When the author writes, the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. He's not writing to about separate things, but one simple truth reiterated, right? Sought to find words of delight. He wrote words of truth. For those of us who are in Christ, the truth is delightful. The most important and clearest exp- expression of the truth that we have is our, is our Bible. The word of truth, words that help us understand God, our Creator, better. It's the greatest source of delight that we can have. God wants us to delight in, in Him. And I'm convinced that there's a lot contained in fearing God. So when we get to verse 13, we've got to go back up and think about delighting. What does it mean to delight in God's Word and God Himself? Fearing God means standing in awe or revering or glorifying. And I think part of it is delighting in. The preacher goes out of his ways to find words of delight, to communicate truths about who God is. They're delightful because they are true. God is God, and therefore what He says about Himself is the most delightful thing that we could ever hear or read about. 
the Word of God ends the debate on what we should delight in. To delight in anything outside of God's Word falls short. And I gave you a list of things that I delight in. But again, everything in its proper place. We must hold the good gifts that God gives to us in their proper place. God's Word given to us in the pages of Scripture ends the search. There is nothing more delightful than the truth about God found in His Word. My prayer for us as a church is that we would find this to be true. That this would be a reality for us. Not to view the Bible as a rule book or truth about God as so sweet. It's like God's love letter, but something much deeper than that. It's more desirable than anything that we could get our heads around because it's the truth about who our God is. So that's the first thing. The Word of God is delightful. Now, the reality of that first one, that one comes first, I think, because the rest of the three things, which are conveniently start with the letter F, the rest of these things show us how we may delight in God's Word. The second thing, then, is that God's Word is formational. Look at this. Uh, Verse 11 is a little bit strange, maybe, to our eyes and to our ears. The words of the wise are like goads. Goad is not a word that usually makes its way into our vocabulary. But the idea is that's communicated here is that sometimes the truth that we need to hear really hurts. Healthy things grow, but growing is sometimes painful. I think it's always painful, in fact. Growing pains may keep you up at night keep my five-year-old up at night, comes into my room this far away from my face, hey, dad, at 3 a.m., freaks me out. <laughs> he said, my legs hurt, buddy. Those are just growing pains. Go back to bed. Yeah, awesome. Paul in Romans 12, 2 writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I love this verse because of all of the form words there. We see conformed, we see transformed, and we see reformed, although your Bible may translate it renewal. But we could easily translate reformed or the reforming of your mind. So Paul says, don't be conformed. The prefix there, con, means with. What he's saying is, don't be swept up into the culture. The culture wants to form you into something. Everything that you engage with out in the world wants to form you into something. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't be swept up into cultural winds. Thinking only about self and self-interest. Thinking only about what the world tells you is important making money or accumulating lots of stuff or retiring early or parenting your kids like this or owning this product or vehicle or having your life changed by this ideology or gaining this insight, etc. Paul says, don't be formed along with the world. Then he says, but be transformed. And the prefix here, trans, means in this case, changing thoroughly. Transformation is what happens when we come to know Jesus. We go from death to life. Big transformation. 
We go from darkness to light. These changes are radical and they are thorough. We are being transformed and we are to be transformed as an alternative to just going along with the winds of the world. To being conformed by the world. And then he says, do this, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, or the renewal or the reforming of your mind. The prefix means again. This has an ongoing effect for us. The nature of this word in the original language has an ongoing effect again and again and again. Be reformed. May your mind be reformed over and over again. And so we ask ourselves, how is our mind reformed which brings about the intended transformation that rejects the confirmation to the world? The answer is simple. This is Paul's conclusion and also Solomon's. The answer is simple. The Word of God. The author says that the word of the wise are like goads. A goad, if you're wondering, what what is a goad? A goad is a stick a sharp stick that's used to drive cattle. Why a goad? Why, why this language? It seems harsh. Because you and I, we need to wake up oftentimes. We walk in and out of church. We walk in and out of church in life. We break formation. God has called us to specific things and we just wander off on our own thinking we know better. I love what John Piper writes. This is from a sermon he preached in the 80s sometime. He said, Satan devotes 168 hours a week trying to deceive you. Do you think you can maintain a renewed mind with a 10-minute glance at God's book once a day? And so we need a goad to bring us all back into the proper formation. Personally, together as the body. Again, growing Healthy things grow. Growing oftentimes hurts. The Word of God comes to us and is sharp. The author of Hebrews tells us that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. Oftentimes when you spend time in God's Word, you're convicted. You're cut to the heart. And that's where the reforming of your mind is happening, bringing about the transformation that you need. So the Word of God is formational. It pierces our hearts and causes us to rethink and to reconsider what we think we know. Paul, 2 Timothy 3.16, reminds us that Scripture is breathed out by God for specific reasons, including reproof. Reproof is a call to, uh, to our breaking of formation. It comes after us when we are conformed to the ways of the world. That's reproof. Friends, do not harden your hearts against these prompts. When you see them in Scripture, when you sit under the Word of God preached like you are right now, don't ignore this truth. You will have no excuse when you stand before the judgment throne. Solomon makes that clear in verse 14. Instead, we must ask, what then must I do? Or how then shall I live in light of these things? Again, the answer comes to us simply. When the Spirit shows us our sin through the Word of God that pierces our hearts, 
moves us back into formation like a goad. The response is simple. Repent and go to Scripture in order that your mind might be reformed in order that you would be transformed more into the likeness of Jesus. It's the reforming of the mind that leads to transformation. Don't just try to love God a little bit better or perform a little bit more in your own strength. It won't work. Fill your mind with the delightful truth that God in His Word tells you. And watch it trickle down from your head to your heart and make you more like Jesus. The third thing that we see here briefly is that the Word of God is firm. Solomon says, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're firmly fixed. This is not flimsy. It doesn't shift like sand under our feet. It doesn't break down and decay. It isn't subject to winds of change. Therefore, it can be trusted because it is reliable. You don't need to go elsewhere, he says. These words, the author says, are given by one shepherd. One shepherd. This one shepherd is God, specifically Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God who took on flesh. These words are intimately tied up in God Himself. They cannot change. God does not change. And therefore, His Word does not change. The construction is certain, like nails firmly fixed. Lastly, then, the Word of God is final. Look at verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. We don't need to look for material beyond the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.15, right before 3.16, which we just quoted, says that Scripture is sufficient to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 17, Paul writes that Scripture is the means by which a Christian may be made complete and is equipped for every good work. So, Scripture is sufficient to bring the understanding of saving faith into our minds and into our hearts, and then it makes us whole. It makes us complete. It makes us mature so that we can be equipped for every good work. The author tells us to beware of anything beyond, wor- uh, beyond words of wisdom contained in Scripture. Does this mean that we shouldn't... Some people take this and say, okay, well then throw away all of our other literature. Absolutely not. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the Word of God is final in our understanding of who God is and what He's done for us in Christ Jesus and the means by which we will be equipped for every good work and maturity in Him. We can find profit in other places, but we need to be discerning. And everything needs to be run through the filter of Scripture. It is the final authority 
on all of life because it flows directly from God, who is the creator and sustainer of all things. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's Jesus Christ. The word of God is final. There is nothing needed further than the word of God. That brings us then to the end of this book. Now the author summarizes the preacher by writing that the whole duty of man, again in verse 13, is to fear God and to keep His commandments. It's no mistake that this comes after a robust explanation of the Word of God. In order to fear God, in order to honor, revere, stand in awe of God, first you must know Him and know what He requires. I heard a pastor tell a story about a time he went to visit a church member and the pastor brought his son with him. And when the church member opened up a door, there was a really big dog. The son was six. The dog looked at him eye to eye. The pastor's son was terrified. And the pastor had forgotten something in the car and asked his son to go get it. And his son turned and, uh, and the church member they were visiting said, just don't run. The dog doesn't like it when people run away from him. So the boy and the dog walked next to each other to the car. The boy was terrified. He feared the dog. The boy had a healthy awe for the dog. But when he knew more about the dog, he could honor the dog and have a proper reverence for the dog. His fear would have quickly turned to cowering if he would have run. But instead, they were able to walk next to each other. The author of Ecclesiastes is communicating something similar to us. When we know God through His Word, when we know that His Word is formational, it's firm, and it's final, we delight in it. That's how those play together. We delight in Him. Because the God who created the mountains and the oceans and the stars that are billions of light years away and sustains them, This God is for us. When we ignore knowing God through His Word, we are in effect running from Him. And we find ourselves in a dangerous, dangerous position. Keeping His commands will become burdensome. John tells us in his first letter that the commands that God gives to us are not burdensome. When we delight in God's Word and we know our God, these things do not or are not burdensome. When we ignore knowing God through His Word, things will slip out of their proper place. They will ebb and flow, money and material, status, power, self and self-interest. These things will be elevated or decline beyond their proper importance in your life. You'll start to redefine God on your own terms. This is what the preacher is communicating in verse 14. These are the deeds that God will bring into judgment. Every secret thought every secret corner of your heart exposed. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus tells some scribes and Pharisees that something greater than Solomon is here. Solomon, the author of this book, Jesus Christ looks at the scribes and Pharisees and tells them something greater than Solomon is here. 
Of course, Jesus is referring to himself. Paul says at the end of chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians that Jesus is our wisdom. Jesus is wisdom incarnate. Something greater. The Proverbs, the sayings that Solomon organizes here and arranges and studies and weighs all with great care find their fullest and perfect and most true, truest expression in Jesus Christ. He is the one shepherd. He is the one shepherd. He is the Word of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us, just like Douglas read a few minutes ago. Brothers and sisters, we can appropriately fear God because of Jesus' work on our behalf. When we've talked about fear, we've talked about reverence, awe, wonder, respect. But there is a type of fear, a fear that cowers. A fear that grips us and immobilizes us. And if you're outside of Christ, you hadn't trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and given your life to Him, then that fear of God is a cowering fear. But if you are in Christ, then you can have that fear that is reverence, that is awe, and that is wonder. Why? Rock of Ages is one of my favorite hymns. The first verse goes like this. Rock of ages, you thought I was going to sing, I'm not going to sing. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. In Exodus 33, Moses asks to see God's glory. He asks him, God, show me your glory. God tells Moses, you can't look at it. Can't look at my face because you're going to die if you see it. So God takes Moses and he places him in the cleft of the rock. Places him there and puts his hand over the rock and passes by Moses. And as he is passed, God moves his hand away and Moses sees God's back. That is the pinnacle of glory that he could see without being obliterated. This is an awe-filled experience. Friends, we are able to behold the glory of God and not cower in fear, but look at it with awe and reverence and wonder because we are hid in Christ. The rock cleft for us. His side was pierced and the blood that flowed cleanses us from sin. It saves us from the wrath to come. We are hid in the rock of ages cleft for us. That wounded side becomes a place of refuge where we go to behold the glory of God in order that we would not be consumed by that very glory. And so we can fear God and we can keep His commands. Not as one who will be consumed but as the one who has full protection of Jesus Christ, our rock of ages. Therefore, Jesus is the final word of God. He forms us into his image and gives us a firm foundation on which to stand. 
He becomes our greatest delight, our one shepherd, our king, our commander, and our God. One, uh, one greater than Solomon is here. Even death that Solomon stared at and wondered what could deliver us from this thing. Is there anything that could get me out of this? Jesus' mission was to end death. The one thing none of us could escape and represented our end is no longer the end. Jesus Christ, not death, is and has the final word. Let's pray.